This is the word of the Lord, Joel chapter 3, as we end up here, starting in verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged. The Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You have sent your spirit to illumine the scriptures and to apply them to our hearts, and we ask that this would be done now. That you would use the faithful reading and hopefully faithful preaching of the word that we may know you, that we may love you, and we may obey you. It is our desire to do so because you have told us to and we have been created to. And it is good for us to do so. Give help, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. I suspect when we look back on this week, in American history, the American church, I suspect that in some ways, this might be a fairly landmark week. In America, I mean, not simply the passing of Billy Graham, not simply because the men's curling team won a gold medal. (laughs) Actually, not for the reason that many of us would probably imagine. This week was the week that Benny Hinn finally admitted he was a fraud. Yeah, it's a shock, wasn't it? Yeah, I got you on that one. Nobody knew that was coming. Yeah, he was interviewed this week. The interview went out publicly, and he was talking about how to do church and everything. And about halfway through the interview, and I'm a bit overstating initially, but halfway through the interview, he starts talking about uh, the Scriptures. And interestingly, he says... The scriptures are the word of God. Now, if you don't know who Benny Hinn is, he is uh, the great prosperity teacher of our age. Uh, And by that, I would not call him a preacher nor pastor uh, because I do not believe he's biblical in any way. But interestingly, in the middle of this interview, as he kind of talks, I think he maybe says a little more than he intends. Maybe it's a Freudian slip. Maybe it's a little bit of that verbal diarrhea and words start coming out and he wants them back in. But either way, he says, you know, as we've tried to deal with prosperity... We've certainly pushed the envelope, and if I'm going to be honest, I think I have to say we've certainly gone further than the Scriptures intend. And you're like, wow, that is refreshingly honest. Good on you, brother, because I've, I've thought that all along, but good on you for catching up to what the rest of us in Christendom have understood. But if we're going to be honest, 
When it comes time for us to wrestle through a passage like Joel chapter 3, we all have a little bit of Benny Hinn in us. And by that I mean we wrestle with how to apply the promises of God's law, the promises of God's word, the promises of God's blessing, and specifically prosperity. I mean, all of these blessings, all of these verses specifically talk about God blessing His people with prosperity. How do we, as faithful Christians, attempt to interpret this and not go full Benny Hinn? He wouldn't recommend we do that, even he's issuing his own correction. And part of that is, I think we have to understand it within the larger context of the scriptures and then a couple of key principles before we even get to the text. First, this conversation is being had within the context of life and death reality. This is not simply a conversation that's like maybe being held in the context of our wallet. You know, like pull out your wallet. No, is this a conversation about $20 or $100 or $1,000? Joel is taking place in the context of death and life. Remember, the locusts have come in and they've destroyed the entire land and people are starving to death. Parents are having to worry about how they're going to feed their children. The closest modern example that we have right now is go read anything in the news about Venezuela. You realize we're Venezuela right now, they're actually starting to academically consider at what point is cannibalism okay. Because they're starving to death. One of the countries in the world that has the largest amount of natural resources... And they're literally starving to death because of their communist regime. It's life and death for them in Venezuela. And in the context of Joel and for Israel, it was life and death. They're they're starving to death with locusts. And then the preacher stands up and you're thinking, okay, we're all starving to death. Joel's going to give me a sermon that is an emotional hug. My pastor, he's going to do this nice thing. And because we're all having a tough time, you know, we don't have enough food to eat. We're all a little hangry. He's going to stand up and preach a sermon that's a big hug. And what does Joel do? (laughs) No, not, not, not really, not so much at all. He starts out the beginning and says, yeah, by the way, the locusts really are bad. Don't minimize that fact. That's terrible. In fact, actually, they're terrible. It's the worst thing many of you will have ever seen in your entire life. It's absolutely terrible. Oh, yeah, by the way, that's nothing compared to the wrath of God. Now let's talk about the wrath of God for a while. Wow, that's, that's strong, that's hard, that's tough. And he walks us through in chapter 2 and then in parts of chapter 3 the life and death consequence of our relationship with God. And he says, look, if you, if you don't know the Lord, you are what Paul would later term, you're children of wrath. And already, even now, you are deserving of God's judgment, and the locusts are just a good foreshadowing. You think it's bad in Venezuela right now? Wait till you see what happens when God's army shows up. He will destroy all of his enemies. It will be terrible. 
But for God's people, there's another alternative. There's salvation at hand. There is a hope in the promises of God. And those two categories are not defined by, are you a better person than your neighbor? They're not defined by how recently you cut your grass, thankfully, or your weeds. It's not defined by how nice your, look, your, how nice your house looks like on the inside. The distinction between children of wrath and children of God is your relationship with Christ and with sin. As God transforms his people, he comes in and regenerates them. He gives them a new heart, a new nature. He makes them children of holiness, not children of wrath. They're marked by repentance and good deeds, and they are transformed. And so instead of being under his displeasure and his wrath constantly, they are his delight and his joy. And so we get to a passage like this at the end, and we have to acknowledge that this is a passage specifically about blessing, and it is specifically for the people of God. Now, if you're an unbeliever in the room, I make this kind of caveat quite frequently. If you want these blessings, come talk to me afterwards. I would love to have that conversation. But unfortunately, these don't belong to you if you don't know Christ. And if you're an unbeliever, you are unfortunately inheriting an inheritance of wrath. The judgment of God being poured out upon you because that is what you have stored up under your great forefather, Adam. But for God's people, these blessings are for us. They're free. They were purchased by Christ and given to us generously. So the one thing that we have to kind of caveat understand is that these are specifically for God's people and not for everyone. Secondly, is we have to understand the the fashion of their delivery. The way in which they are administered, the way they're given. And we have to again look at the book of Joel to see this. Joel has been talking about the last days and the end times, uh, basically more or less from halfway through chapter 1 all the way to to this point here. The, The whole book is about the end times. But it's interesting, as he's been talking about it, he's been mixing the verbiage of what he's talking about. Some of it seems to happen when Jesus shows up the first time. Some of it seems to happen when Jesus shows up the second time. Some of God's judgment is being poured out now against the sinners. Some of God's judgment will be poured out finally at the end of time. It's a little bit of a both and. And that's very helpful when we go to understand these promises. Because I would suggest humbly part of the error of the prosperity gospel is to reduce all of the blessings of the scriptures to now. And part of the error of dispensationalism is to reduce them only to later. You see, part of what is designed in the scriptures is for so many of these things to be processed through an already but not yet sort of scheme. When we talked about the judgment of God, is God's judgment being revealed upon the wicked now or is it being revealed upon the wicked later? Well, give me yes and you're right. 
We talked about this in Sunday school. This is the grammar that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is currently being revealed against the wicked, but it's not yet fully being revealed against the wicked. Already now we see consequences attached to sin. We see destruction following sin, but do we see them punished in hell yet? Well, no, not yet. We will, but no, not yet. And then now dealing with God's blessings is that same framework. We already have access to them in some way as a part of God's people, but not yet fully. So as we go to look at these verses to make sure we don't reduce them either entirely to a now or entirely to a later, but get both elements, and then certainly and most importantly, not simply to reduce them to the blessings that we value the most today. I think it's probably safe to say in the brief study of history that I've done in the 38 years the Lord has given me, there has been no culture that has been as materialistic as ours has. I mean, I can't think of one. I've never seen one in all of my reading. We are the most materialistic culture in the history of the world, as I understand it. And it is interesting that we want to reduce God's blessings to those same materials. The things that we like are the things that, you know, we get excited about God giving blessings in. And you think about this, if you have a question with a young child, and you're like, what's heaven going to be like? And they're like, it will be filled with ice cream. (laughs) And you're like, kid, I I love it, but you need to aim higher, right? I I love ice cream, don't get me wrong, but you need to aim higher. There are things better in life than ice cream. But it's interesting, that's a lot of times what we as Americans do with God's blessing. God's going to bless me, I'll be rich. Uh, you need to aim higher, my friends. <laughs> That's the adult version of saying, I just want vanilla ice cream. No, you got you to gotta do better than that. All right, so let's look at the text. We've got our kind of preliminary principles in place. And there's kind of three schemes, three elements that God is, ways that God is going to provide blessing. All right, so that you know that I am the Lord your God. So that you understand what's taking place, there are certain blessings that are going to happen. This is God displaying his own greatness, displaying his own power, displaying his own glory, displaying his own grandeur. He is showcasing how amazing he is. And it starts at the end of verse 16. I cut this off last week. But the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel, so that you know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never pass again through it. He starts out with the promise there at the end of 16 to say, uh, all right, first kind of thematic idea of blessing is God is uh, he's a place of security for the saints. He's a place of safety. He himself is their refuge. And it starts that way. Look, the Lord is a refuge to his people. And this is a a reoccurring theme all throughout the Psalms that we may uh, find safety in God. And you have wonderful portraits of like a, one of my favorites is uh, like a child hiding in their mother's skirts. You know, like a kid that's really shy, not that we don't have any of them in here, that when I go try to talk to them and they see the scary man with a loud voice, they immediately try to hide behind mom's legs, right? Parents, you know which kids those are. 
It's the same thing. We, we've given the same illustration. Another one is it's, uh, God is portrayed as like a mama bird that takes his wing and puts it over the baby birds and hides them safe and underneath and gives protection and safety. He is a place of refuge. And then a stronghold to the people of Israel. We don't tend to think of strongholds as being that important, do we? Because most of us have probably never suffered a home invasion. I mean, realistically, I, I, I don't know if any of us have. Maybe you have, and I haven't heard that story yet. Please, invite me over to your house and tell me. I would love to know that one, if you're able to tell it. But Israel, on the other hand, as a nation, that's kind of pretty much their thing, right? I mean, constantly on the brink of being invaded by the world's superpower because they're located between all of them. I mean, if you look geographically where Israel has been throughout this point of history, it's like take superpower number one, superpower number two, superpower number three, superpower number four, put the pot spot where all of them touch, and that's Israel. The idea of having a stronghold that can't be invaded would be pretty spectacular. To have a safe place that you could flee to, that the Egyptians couldn't get you that the Syrians couldn't get you, that the Babylonians couldn't get you, that the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and everybody else, that no one could get you, is a wonderful idea. For those of you that are particularly tender in your conscience towards your struggle of sin, you know that feeling of exhaustion that you get where you're like, oh, can I just be done? Like, can I just be done with this sin? I'm tired. I've been confessing it for 25 years. He's that stronghold, that place of victory where you can find safety. And then he continues, oh, look, this is to showcase my glory, because why? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to reside in you, and because I'm residing in you in Zion, in my holy mountain, you're going to be safe. You're going to be holy. Meaning you're going to be set apart, you're going to be different, you're going to be unique, you will be unlike anyone else, and on top of that, strangers shall never pass again through it. And we as great Americans are like, that makes no sense. And what this is saying is, look, you you will be with your people, and you will no longer have the invader, the wicked the foreigner in the sense of uh, up to mischievous ends coming into your midst. You will dwell safely within your own kind. And it's not talking here about race. It's not talking about skin color. It's not talking about eye color or left-handed or right-handed. It's not talking about whether you like disc golf or you don't. It's not talking about any of those things. It's talking about the unity that comes from the body of Christ, that you will be joined with God's people, and no one will come in your midst aside from the Lord himself. And you think, man, that, that's a pretty serious set of promises, isn't it? That God will be the place of security for his people. And it's important that, again, we we look at this and we think about it in the already and not yet scheme. If we only see this as future-oriented, what will your life be like right now? Answer is miserable. If you look at these promises and only think of them as being in the future tense, 
you're going to have a fairly miserable Christian life. Because you, I mean, just think about it. If you miss this present, what are you going to miss? That I can hide in God and He is my safety. That I can hide in God, that He is my stronghold. That I can hide in God and He is my holiness. That I can hide in God and He is my identity. And that I can hide in the church because He's designed me to find safety here. Think about all of the things you miss if you only see this as a future tense. I'm going to hone in on just one of these very quickly. The idea that we are already holy creatures. To think about how we see ourselves in our identity. Since what happened in the school in Florida, there has been a new national conversation. Part of it has been centered around firearms and what's permissible and not permissible, and that's not what I'm going to touch today. A second conversation is brewing under the surface, and it is this, that we have begun to realize as a nation and as a culture that our identities of what people look like and act like and are is broken. We're broken. Our idea of what boys are supposed to be broken. Our idea of how people are supposed to interact with each other are broken. And one of the things that we're really beginning to start to understand is our nation has been acting in a shameless fashion for more or less a hundred years. And the problem is, is you can't run from shame. It always catches up. And now that it's starting to settle in, we're beginning to realize as a nation, oh dear, what do we do? We've created a culture where, with oppressive shame, particularly on our young men, what, what do we do? And for the people of God, it's wonderful. <laughs> Look, I'm holy already. I've got a new nature. I've got a new heart. I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm not defined by that. I'm not defined by that mess. I've been cleansed from guilt. I've been cleansed from sin's power. I've been cleansed from sin's shame. I don't have to have any of that. What happens if we only see this promise in the present tense and don't think anything about the future? Well, (laughs) that breeds worldly Christians is what that breeds. That breeds people that look at this time and place and go, man, this is it. And the problem is, that works when you're in maybe your 18s and 20s. That does not work in your 60s and 70s and 80s. Once you start getting knee problems and hip problems and shoulder problems and back problems and you wake up in the morning and it takes you maybe a couple of hours to get loose. A couple of hours, right? If we see these promises as only in the now, we fall in love with the now. And we think this is all that life is to offer. And you know what? It makes homegoing very scary prospect. Because we think this is all we have. It's important that we understand these promises so that we have something to look forward to. So that we can rejoice in the life to come. It's been one of the fun things reading about Billy Graham this week is his statements even processing his own death. When you go to look for me, you won't find me because I'll be at home. It's one of my favorite lines by him. 
I told you in October when I went to the conference, the preaching conference in Boston, uh, they had a video from, um, from Haddon Robinson. And uh, it was interesting because Haddon Robinson had died about three weeks earlier. And he had, had helped start the event that I was at. And it was interesting because it was him processing his own death just a matter of months before he died. And it was this weird kind of moment to hear from the other side of a grave the man saying, look, y'all don't need to worry. You don't need to worry. Be at peace. I know where my safe haven is. I know who my refuge is. I know who my stronghold is. This life is wonderful, and I've had a great one, but it's certainly not enough. And I'm going to meet true life face to face. God will bless his people as he is their place of security. Now he changes from security into scarcity. And this is an incredibly important one. Finally, Joel gets around to the part of the sermon where he gives a hug to the people that are starving to death in front of him. The locusts have eaten everything. There's nothing in the land. And now the promises come in verse 18 that are shocking. In that day, that last day, in the end of days, in the end of time, in the days that mark the end, we will be not characterized by scarcity, but characterized by abundance. And as with much of the scriptures, he uses an illustration that we can understand. He starts by saying, well, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Now, obviously, this is a metaphor. It's not 100% perfectly accurate because that would be really weird. The idea of the mountains having wine flowing down them, massive, you know, mudslides, all the critters have been, you know, hammered on drinking the water running down. It makes no sense, right? The, The point is, it's an illustration. And what is it illustrating? The idea that the vineyards, which normally would not grow on top of mountains, they would have grown in better places than that, but the vineyards are so full and the harvest is so rich that the grapes can't be harvested fast enough. So they're falling to the ground, and instead of dehydrating, there's so much of them that it's actually like turning to goo and then running down the sides and then turning to wine and fermenting as it flips. It's like Scrooge McDuck kind of money. I mean, you remember the duck tail Scrooge McDuck going diving into the giant, you know, giant vault of money and swinging around and spitting it out? It's the same kind of illustration. It's like, look, there's going to be so much wealth that you're not even going to be able to process it. my favorite part of the, the blessing that's given to Judah at the end of, uh, end of life there. He's saying, look, you're going to wash your clothes in wine. <laughs> Man. I mean, that, that's a lot. I mean, th- that today for us would be the equivalent of saying, like, when you go out to dinner, you're going to use $100 bills as your napkins. <laughs> I mean, that, that's very similar. It's just like, why would you ever do that? Wine is an incredibly precious resource. It's the only thing you could drink and know you weren't going to get sick. Probably one of the few things that actually tasted good. And here, look, it's so plentiful, it's flowing off the mountains. And the hills shall flow with milk. And again, we know this is a, it's an illustration, it's a metaphor. I mean, if the hills actually did flow with milk, those would either be really weird hills or really foul-smelling country. <laughs> right? Everything souring along the way, ew, that's gross. 
But the idea being that there's so much milk that it actually is just running away because you have too much of it to use. And you think about, again, what that would require. It would require a large enough herd to have that much milk. And again, it's the idea of scarcity. It's gone. There's so many resources, you can't even harvest them enough. It would be as if the interest in your bank account was so high, you couldn't spend it fast enough to get to the principal. There's just massive amounts of, of blessing. Uh, the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. Again, this is talking about the harvest and a, a land that would be marked by dryness and an arid climate. Look, there's water everywhere. It's abundant. It's returning to a garden. Does that sound familiar? Right? The curse at the very beginning when they're thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Look, it's, it's being undone and the land itself is beginning to, to resemble a garden. And then my favorite at the very end there, a fountain shall come from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. And this is an illustration that's actually picked up in Revelation 22. When in Revelation it goes to talk about what the temple of God looks like in the new heavens and new earth, it talks about from the throne of Christ, there is a river that flows out from the throne. It flows out through the giant crystal bedded river through the town and then out into the land around. And what it's symbolizing, what it's an illustration of, is that life comes from the presence of God. I mean, again, in that culture, water is life. I mean, you don't have water, you die. Why do they always fight over wells everywhere they're dug? You ever think about that? They don't fight over pastures the same way. They don't fight over logs the same way. They fight over wells everywhere they go because water is so precious. And here it is. It's water of life bubbling up from the very presence of Christ and flowing out to the nations around. Scarcity will be done away with. And this is one that in the future sense we get, right? We understand this. We look forward to heaven. Yay! We don't have to major in econ anymore. Right? Economics is the study of scarcity. There is none. We don't have to worry about that. No lack of resources. I'll still probably have to sleep because I'm a finite creature, but I, who knows how much I have to. I don't know. It'll be interesting. Time won't really be an issue because I'll have all of that that I need. I feel like I never have enough time now. I wish I had about six or seven more hours each day. I'd take them if I could. But it's interesting how we see this fulfilled already. This is the fun one to think about. How is this fulfilled already where scarcity is removed in some form or fashion? I'm going to start with a writing from Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in heaven and things on earth. Catch how that started? 
He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then if there was any doubt about that, he then immediately turns to the work of Christ and says, look, you have the spirit. You've been redeemed. You've been transformed. You're being sanctified. You will be glorified. You have everything that you need to live a life full of grace and mercy in King Jesus. Look at the church. So little scarcity. We have preachers, we have teachers, we have servants, we have people who pray. We have all spiritual blessings needed and given. God is gracious to His people. Finally, God will bless His people with security from their enemies. He turns in verses 19 through 21. Egypt shall become a desolation. Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Jesus. He begins to go through what's going to happen to the people who destroy the people of God. And God will take revenge upon them. He will destroy the enemies of the people of God. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no questions. There's no uh, maybe. There's no equivocating. It will happen. And this is an aspect that, again, we kind of struggle with emotionally processing in the Western and the American church. To think about part of your salvation is that you may know that when I die and get to the other side, my enemies will be destroyed. And do you know why we struggle with that truth emotionally? Because we have the softest life in American history. World history, church history, pick. The Puritans who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, do you think they understood that? Question, what, what, do, what benefit do believers receive upon the resurrection? The vindication, the destruction of their enemies. It's interesting where they start. Why? Because they're writing the confession of faith to try to stay alive. It was their whole like, hey, please stop killing us. This is what we believe. You know, our brothers and sisters living in Africa right now or living in China or living in North Korea. Oh my goodness, North Korea. <coughs> Do you think that they long for the day that their enemies will be destroyed? No, I mean, I'm assuming they long correctly that they'll be destroyed through conversion first. I mean, that's what we want them to be. We want Paul's story. Hey, I was the worst of people. I literally murdered Christians, and now I am one, and it's great. But if not, if they choose to not, if they continue to sin against the Lord, their destruction is assured. Now, again, this is hard for us emotionally because we don't really have enemies. I mean, the worst kind of enemies we have are like that neighbor who lets his dog kind of go to the bathroom in our front yard and then doesn't pick up after him. And we're like, oh, vindication for the dog. And you're like, oh, man, please no. (laughs) But to be reminded that God's people are perishing all over the world. But then to think actually more about the enemies that we do wrestle with. Your flesh will be a victim of God's vengeance. How fun is that to think about? That flesh that I do battle against, that I'm like, ah, I hate my sin, I'm tired of sinning, that will be a victim of God's vengeance because it's been taking advantage of me my whole life and he will defeat that too. That's pretty cool. 
and death itself. It'll be done away with, dismissed, you're gone, it's over, your time, you're finished. Thanks for playing, you had a good run. The devil himself shows up at the beginning of the Bible, shows up when Jesus is active, shows up at the end of the Bible, and he's gone. He's, his story's over. His portion of the story of the people of God is finished, and it's done, he's over, he's out. He loses and I tell you, I, we long, I, long, I long for that future element of it, but to make sure we don't forget we have this victory even now. That we have victory even now because these promises are for yes and later, for already and not yet, for now and for then, that we can have victory over the enemies of God in prayer and in love and in sacrifice and in transformation. That's why King Jesus is pictured in Revelation with the sword, not us. That's why we don't go around killing people, our enemies. We don't do that. That's not what Christians do. We pray and we leave vengeance in the Lord's hand. Now the design for this, hopefully as we see, is Lord loves his people and he loves us so much that he's going to bless us and thank the Lord that it's not just with vanilla ice cream or with financial prosperity. Because both of those are way too small compared to what he's giving. Because what is he talking about here? Ultimately, he's talking about the blessings that come from being with him. God's people may trust that he will bless them with his presence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would teach us that we might love you. Have victory over sin and be ready for when we are called home. For Christ's sake, amen.